How are things? Good. I'm currently sitting at the Mount Beauty Airport. Fantastic. Looking up at Mount Bogong. Yep. Which is partially covered in snow and a bit of cloud and a lot of smoke haze from people's fires. It's pretty cold at the moment. Beautiful. And I just thought it was relevant that I yeah. am sitting here because you've got a pretty amazing story about a rescue you did on Mount Bogong. Yeah, and in preparation for our, our chat, I actually called up a, um, a Google Earth image of the area. So um, I'm looking at the same point, only from a different perspective. Yeah, right. So the Mount Bogong Rescue, 2002, September. I was on the um, South Care the Canberra-based South Care aircraft, uh, an old Bell 412 Classic, at the new South Care base just um, south of, um, in the south of Canberra. Okay. It was just coming on for midnight. It was September the 10th, the day before the first anniversary of another fairly momentous occasion mm. it was um, uh, a night shift normal night shift and in in official terms uh, EMS uh, means earn money sleeping <laughs> uh, um, the, the wider public knows it as emergency medical services but those of us in the industry know the, the real meaning so um I was just thinking about getting ready to turn in, and we got a, I got a call. The task phone rang, and it was our tasking agency. And he he said, uh, "We've got an emergency," which I thought was a bit odd because they they never rang us for anything other than an emergency. Mm. But he went on to explain that a young lad, uh, a school kid, had. Um, slid down a steep slope on the uh, side of Mount Bogong and impacted a tree and broken both femurs. Uh, one of his classmates, a young girl, went to his, tried to go to his aid. She slipped. She hit a tree and wound up with, with what is called a um, flail section, broken ribs. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> the, uh, the young lad in particular was very badly injured. Uh, it happened around five o'clock in the afternoon, and now it was going on for midnight. A a group of police, a rescue party, had uh, gone to the scene, and they they were aware that uh, this young man wouldn't um, live until the morning. Uh, as you know, uh, broken femurs are a, a very a, quite a life threatening. Um, injury, particularly when they're multiple fractures. They had called on the aircraft based in Latrobe Valley to attend. He knocked it back uh, due to icing conditions over the mountains. They contacted the um, police air wing in Victoria, in uh, Melbourne, and they knocked it back because of the forecast icing conditions. And he said, literally, you are our only hope, which what, would be a good line to have in a science fiction movie. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> what What was the problem with icing? Uh, icing is a situation where flight in visible moisture, i.e. cloud, at around four degrees or below, four degrees centigrade or below, can lead to the build-up of ice on the airframe. Now, Larger aircraft have anti-icing and de-icing systems that allow them to operate in those conditions. But helicopters are a low, low-level low machine. We have no de-ice or anti-ice capability. So uh, flight invisible moisture at or below four degrees can lead to uh, ice buildup on the airframe, including the rotors, uh, which is potentially very dangerous. So, so they, were, flight... they were within their rights to knock it back they they absolutely within their rights to knock it back um however 
um, they knocked the job back on the strength of forecast rather than actual conditions. Okay. And that's not to say that icing conditions didn't exist on their, their track. Um, it, I just mean that we were able to get to the scene without flying through icing conditions. Okay. Um, my first question to the the guy on the tasking phone was, was he in contact with the um, rescue party? He said yes. So I asked him to ask them to look up and tell tell him what they saw. And he came back a minute later and said they can see stars. So I said, hang on. And I ducked out the door, looked up, and I could see stars. Mm. So I went back in and said, they can see stars my their end. I can see stars my end. We'll give it a go. Okay. If we if we can do it, we will. If we can't, we'll we'll turn back. And they were satisfied with the the possibility that we might have to abort the the mission, um, on the strength that at uh, least we would give it a shot. Mm. So the our limiting factors were um, if we encountered cloud uh, en route above the freezing level that would be a uh, no-go. Um, and if there was cloud below lower safe over the scene, that would also be a no-go. Okay. So they were our, they were the criteria for turning back. Yep. And your crew was happy with that? No, not really. <laughs> My crewman for the night, uh, for the evening, was a very, very lackluster individual. Um, he, he, he really embodied the uh, earn money sleeping uh, ethos in that uh, he'd turn up for work on a night shift, he'd eat dinner and go to bed. Uh, so he'd been he'd been asleep for probably three or four hours. Okay. So I'd, when I bashed on the door, I'd, I had to bang on his door at least a couple of times and I finally got a response and I said, we've got a job. And he was very unhappy. And when I told him where it was, he just said, bullshit, because... The, the forecast said that uh, the conditions weren't suitable. So I explained to him that <clears throat> the conditions were clear on both ends. Um, we'd give it a shot. And if we encountered uh, adverse conditions on the way, we'd turn back. So he got up swearing and moaning. The Two ACT paramedics turned up, both of them excellent, excellent paramedics. Um, Christy McAllister, who was one of the paramedics on the Senator Hobart rescue, and uh, Ian Crossley, a very, very sharp individual who went by the nickname of Pooh <laughs> because on his first day as a student paramedic, he'd walked through dog shit and tracked tracked it into the auditorium. Brilliant. So he was known as Pooh forevermore. <laughs> um, but two very, 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 very skilled operators um, and quite enthusiastic with the with the mission. Uh, I told them that there's a, there's a probably better than even chance that we'd have to turn back, but we were going to give it a go. And as you know, there, there is a... Uh, as an EMS pilot, we should never be swayed by the severity of a case. Mm. They should all be treated the same. And indeed, uh, there was nothing done in the course of this mission that wouldn't have been done in uh, a less severe mission. Yeah. But we're, we're only human, and we we were all aware that um, the the life of a uh, of this boy was basically literally in the balance. So we... Not that we would, uh, that would alter the way that we operated, but we were we were very <laughs> we were very hopeful that we could get in and you know go to this young man's aid. Mm. So um, in my diary, it records uh, a takeoff of, at about uh, half past midnight on the eleventh of September, so nine eleven two thousand and two. Right. Uh, the track to Mount Bogong uh, was to the 
um, southwest, and almost immediately after uh, leaving the city behind, we were over what's known as Tiger Country. And you know as well as I do what what Tiger Country represents. Yeah, um, but even by day, it's frightening. Absolutely, <laughs> it's probably more frightening by day because you can actually see it. Yeah, but um, Tiger Country for those not in the not in the business um, is the kind of country that if you were forced down, uh, there would be no hope of of survival, and probably a slim chance of even being found. Mm. Incredibly rough terrain, beautiful, but but very very inhospitable to human activity. Yeah, for sure. So we leveled out at uh, 9,000 feet, and it was actually a beautiful night for flying. I must admit that I was watching the engine instruments a little more uh, closely than would have been normal, and knowing what was beneath us, not that we could see it. But um, my crewman continued with his um, lack of enthusiasm, you might say, um, the paramedics down the back were were both quite uh, still quite enthusiastic about uh, getting this job done. And um, some distance out of the scene, we had the scene um, the lat long latitude longitude headed on the GPS and the old Trimble. Uh, we reached our top of descent. Now, there's one thing that we had going for us uh, that ordinarily would not have been the case, and that is that a BK-117 helicopter uh, based in Mount Hotham was airborne over the scene. Now, he was orbiting at uh, 10,000 feet. I don't know who who was responsible for putting him up there, but it was a a brilliant piece of um, of forward planning. Yeah. Just before before your descent, Ray, were you wearing night vision goggles? No, this is this is before the uh, advent of NVG in Australia. It had been used elsewhere, all around the world for years and years by emergency services, uh, helicopter crews, including New Zealand. They'd had them since '85 or something. Mm-hmm. Twenty years before we got them, um, the the use of NVG was was blocked by the Civil Aviation Safety Authority for for years, probably decades, uh, absolutely sinful because most of the individuals making these decisions were um, ex-airline pilots, so high-capacity RPT, fixed-wing pilots, with no concept of what it was like to try and descend in the dark um, by the the beam of a 30 million candle power searchlight. Now, 30 million candle power sounds fairly hefty but um, when you're dealing with the kind of distances involved in aviation um, it is it's you might as well be tapping your way um, with a white stick right um, the the beam is even uh, and in a narrow focus the, the beam is very diffuse ground you usually get visual contact with the ground around a thousand feet but it's only very vague. It's not until three or four hundred feet that, with the beam sp- spread fairly wide, that you get uh, a good um, visual contact with good features on the ground. <laughs> so we were descending from nine thousand feet through about, I guess, four or five thousand feet to the scene. Um, How much difference would night vision goggles have made at that point? Ah. Uh, we would have been able to see everything. Instead of descending to a diffuse blob of white light, we would have seen the entire world. And for for and we dealt with this. It was the it was just accepted that this is how we did things in those days. But mm. um, these days, it, it's a it's almost a dead art, and for good reason. Yeah. Um. It, it is. It requires very, very precise profiles in terms of descent, rate of descent and uh, ground speed. And especially to an armoured area, uh, there is there is no concept of 
there are very, very few visual cues for almost the entire descent. That's with, with just the night sun. With just the night sun. Mm. With NVG, um, even uh, on a uh, night with no moon, um, you, you've got you've got good visual contact with the surface for the entire descent. Yeah. So um, for for Casa to have prevented us from using what is literally life-saving technology for as long as they did was absolutely shameful. Mm. Uh, and in fact, when we were flying around in uh, East Timor, same situation, very little cultural lighting, very steep terrain, um, a set, several sets of brand new MVGs sitting locked up in a cupboard back at the base while we're scratching around by the night zone. And I, um, I left instructions with my then partner saying that if, if I fly into the side of a mountain one night, first of all, sue CASA and then sue the company for being so weak mm. in not pushing the case. Mm. So we commenced a descent down from 9,000 feet uh, with Mitch Vernon in the BK circling overhead. Um, started picking up ground features at around 1,000 feet. Um, it was very steep terrain. Um, with quite a heavy snow cover. So the surface was fairly amorphous, but there it was below the tree line, so we had trees and boulders to give us decent visual cues. But once we reached um, the point where we could commence what was called a night sun crawl, um, which is low-level flight at slow speed, um, over terrain, maintaining visual contact by the beam of a, uh, the night sun. We would, we couldn't find the rescue party. Uh, the position they'd given us, and we'd entered in the, the treble, bore no resemblance to where they, we eventually found them. So, <clears throat> Mitch, um, at ten thousand feet overhead, Mitch could see the likes of the rescue party on the ground, and he could see us by the night sun and he literally conned us uh, onto the scene um, left Amazing. a bit right a bit um, to reach the scene we we were going up and over um, very steep ridges um, and into you know, quite deep valleys until we came around a corner and there they were so the the hardest part of um, the first hardest part of the mission was was over. <clears throat> yeah. So the scene was on the side of a a very steep slope uh, on Mount Bogong. the The rescue party, and I'll I'll talk a bit about them later because again, it's a was a, a huge coincidence. The rescue party hacked out a ledge. On, in the snow where they had set up and they had the, the two patients. Um, the, the lad had two broken femurs. Um, he'd been there for eight, eight hours or more um, lying on the snow as, and with no pain relief of any, any description. And with, with two broken femurs, the, the police were convinced and rightly so, that he wouldn't survive till morning. Um, because as you know, um, broken femurs are, can be a life-threatening injury, particularly with multiple fractures. So we came into a hover, uh, a beam, the scene, and <clears throat> the crewy had climbed over the back during the descent and was ready to uh, commence operating the winch. The paramedics had prepared all their gear and were all set and ready to go. So the right rear door, sliding door came open and we commenced putting the, the paramedics down. So I was hovering probably 60 feet above the, the ground directly below us, but the, with a very steep slope, I was using treetops at eye level, probably 20, 30 metres away, uh, for visual cues. 
So I had the night sun in front and the aircraft searchlight out to the side and using the, the two beams to maintain position. So Christy went down first with the Thomas pack, which is the, the standard medical pack that the paramedics carry, quite a large bulky pack. She hit, hit the deck or, or landed on the, on the ground and immediately lost her footing. And went skittering off down the slope, and until the um, police on the ground managed to grab hold of her and pulled her back up. Uh, she disconnected. The hook came up, and <clears throat> Ian Crossley went down. Um, they were ready for him this time, so um, when he touched down, they grabbed hold of him. He disconnected the hook. The hook came up, and we sat there waiting. So it had, it had taken probably around an hour to get to the scene. And we were now sitting in the harbour at around probably 70, 75% torque. So we were sucking fuel at a fair rate. I knew it was going to be a fairly long turnaround because they would have to stabilise the the boy with the broken legs <clears throat> um, and, as they say in the game, get him packaged. The... Uh, the only way we're going to get him out was to sling him up in the um, rescue stretcher, titanium basket. Uh, the girl was going to come up just with a normal strop. So the the first thing that happened was the cops asked me to move away because I was the downwasher was hammering them. They're getting they're getting hit by falling branches. Um, you know, it was the downwasher was creating a blizzard on the ground. So um, I apologised profusely and moved to the left uh, a good 50 metres, which took the downwash away from them, but we were now hovering. We were now in a very, very high hover uh, due to the, the slope. And the, the references were uh, a lot less accurate. Um, so uh, we sat there for probably... 10 or 15 minutes, and I was just watching the, the fuel gauge wind down. And as much as I hate trying to hurry these the, the paras when they're doing their work, I had to call up and say, you know, what kind of turnaround time um, have we got? Now, up until then, we didn't realise that there were two patients. We only went and knew about the uh, young man with the broken legs. So the cop came back and said, uh, we've got two patients to go it's going to be a fairly long turnaround. I said, I'm going to have to go and get fuel. So we very reluctantly left, climbed up, keeping the uh, terrain in the beam until we're at an altitude where there was no reliable uh, visual information. Turned left away from the terrain and climbed up and flew to Albury, where we landed at, I don't know, two or three in the morning, uh, shut down and refueled. Now, because of the, uh, the, the crew had suddenly found his enthusiasm because we'd had a real win in getting the, the paramedics to the scene. And it, there was an odd, odds on chance that um, this, this kid was going to survive. Um, once they they managed to to carry out the you know the, the critical first actions, um, first of all pain relief obviously, and stabilise the injuries. Um, we we tanked up, um, started up, and set off back to the scene. And I remember um, flying over the over this terrain on the climb out. <laughs> thinking, you know, we've got to descend back into this. Mm. So it was really an up and over. Um, we descended again towards a modified GPS position. But conditions had changed quite a bit. There, there was a, a phenomenon in mountainous areas called a catabatic wind, where over the course of the night, uh, cold air on the top of... Um, of mountainous terrain begins to flow downhill. 
Um, the catabatic winds can be can be quite severe. But what it meant for us was we'd gone from a mild headwind in the first approach to to quite a strong tailwind. So we were now creeping along, doing another night sun crawl, trying to find the rescue party um, with the wind up the tail. So we were staggering along um, with almost zero airspeed air to maintain a decent ground speed. And the BK had gone, so there's no one to guide us visually on to back to the scene. So we scratched around and scratched around, low level in the night sun, um, pulling bags of power because you know, the um, the wind was up the, the tail. Um, went to went to the GPS, GPS position. They weren't there. We um, orbited around, uh, looked up this valley, looked up that valley, and kept asking them, can they hear the helicopter? And unfortunately, the answer came back, no. Um, so... We finally called up on the, the passing frequency uh, because they have repeaters all over the country. We still had fairly decent comms, um, not direct comms with the ground party because it, that was line of sight, and said, um, "Look, we're going to have to we're going to have to give this away. The conditions are just the conditions are are not acceptable." So the the guy on the, on the radio said passed a message on and said, the paramedics asked, can you drop their emergency packs off first? Because they'd left them in the boot, their emergency survival packs. Um, so I thought, what part of we can't find them doesn't he understand? Mm. Um, so I explained patiently that A, the, the bags were in the boot, uh, and B, we couldn't find them to drop them anyway. So the poor old paras sat out there uh, all all night in their flight suits and and jackets, but without any thermals or thick socks, gloves. And it led to a very funny comment after the mission, but we can leave that to later. Now the scene on the ground. Do you do you want me to go down this little diversion? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, last year, um, fairly early on in the year. Um, I was in Latrobe Valley uh, on the 139 and got tasked to uh, a job at Falls Creek. Um, another another night job, uh, more bad weather, lots of snow, um, another religious experience, but this time with the benefit of MEG, um, trying to scratch around low level to get into Falls Creek. So we... We did find Falls Creek, um, and this is where experience comes in. Uh, you know as well as I do that um, there is often there is often there are more ways of skinning a cat. And this time, getting into Falls Creek just re- required a little bit of creativity. But we got into Falls Creek, shut down, and there was a an Alpine patrol cop and his offsider at the car park, keeping the, the traffic away from the aircraft. And we were just chatting, and he said, oh, you, you know, there was this amazing rescue on Mount Bogong in 2002, oh, years ago. He didn't remember the date. He said, oh, this kid slipped down a, a slope and broke both his legs, and he was going to die. And this aircraft got in from Canberra. I said, that was me. Long story short, for any South Park fans out there, um, he put me in contact with a um, a policewoman who was at the scene uh, and had been there since um, since the the afternoon. So um, she gave me some she gave me some incredible um, sort of background on what it was like on the ground and. Um, it really, you know, she talks about when they were loading this kid up into the uh, the rescue, into the basket, the rescue stretcher, they could hear the hear the bones. Um, he, I think she called it crepitation, but they could hear the bones grinding in his legs. 
So um, they they'd been sitting. This is a a team of Alpine Rescue Police. They were on a training mission when a teacher turned up at the hut where they were all sitting around and said that one of the students had been injured. Now, this, the teacher didn't give the impression that he was injured very badly, so they um, they left a lot of their um, rescue equipment behind, believing that it was going to be, they were going to go down and walk this kid out. And it wasn't until they got there until they realised how badly injured he was. So um, the scene on the ground was uh, everybody standing around trying to work out what they were going to do now that the helicopter couldn't get back. And so they were now faced uh, with a situation where they're going to have to carry him out. And the, there were two, two options. Go down into, um, into basically, basically wilderness or try and make their way back up the slope. Either way, it was going to be, it was going to take hours and they weren't sure that the, uh, he would survive. My crewman and I bugged out, went back to um, Albury, shut down again, refueled, and my intention was to wait until just before first light so that we could start up, be airborne, and then be on, on scene at first light. And we were, we were sitting out there in the totally deserted airport in Albury, freezing cold uh, and my my crew was sitting with his hands in his pockets and his chin on his chest and he honestly looked so pissed off he, he was he was asking himself you know why didn't he take up banking as a career <laughs> instead of you know being a flipping rescue crewman um, there was this stray cat little black cat and it just came up and sat down beside me so you know, I spent entire time just talking to this cat and very early in the morning probably around five-ish we jumped in the aircraft and it cranked up and flew off just as the first light was seeping in up this this long absolutely stunning valley low level of course because we could see the now see the ground and we had to go low level because since our second attempt, a layer of cloud had formed over the mountains. And just eyeballing the cloud, I thought it, it looked to me as if the, the scene would actually be in cloud, which would mean there's no way that we could get to them. Back at the scene, they were all, as the light was coming up, they were all getting rallying themselves to start carrying this kid out with, with the young the young girl who was also quite badly injured and anybody's had broken ribs would, um, would know how painful they are. So it was going to, it was going to be some monumental five or six hour walk out for them. And they're always saying, there's no way the helicopter's going to make it back in. And then one of them said, uh, what's that sound? And it was the, the totally, unmistakable sound of a 412 rotor so we had no trouble finding them this time we just kept sliding up and over ridges and sliding around the corner until we came to the, the rescue party and um, came into a hover door came open um, the winch line went down and up came I'm pretty sure it was Poo with the stretcher. The stretcher came aboard, was secured, and then up came Christy. So the the kid was was still alive, obviously. Uh, he was deeply sedated, very very cold. Poo and Christy were freezing, and as we set off. <clears throat> The crew is, crew is really happy now because we're all heroes. As we set off, um, doors closed, the heaters come on, and the poor Christy's sitting down the back. And Christy said, do you, do you know 
what what we said. I said no, we said only Ray could have got us in there. Mm-hmm. And do you know what else we said? Fuck Ray. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we trucked off to Albury, and we should, could have gone to the hospital. It's a two minute hop from the airfield, but some idiot said go to the airport and an ambulance will meet you. So we landed at the airport, shut down. Um, I got my first look at the the two patients. Uh, the girl in, in particular, you know, she had flower section broken ribs, incredibly painful. You know, she was, um, I think the term is stoic. Uh, she didn't, comp- not one word of complaint. Um, the young lad was just out to it. We waited and waited, and after about 10 or 15 minutes, radio calls flying left, right, and center. And they said, um, can you take him to the hospital? Brilliant idea. So started up, lifted off, and landed. Um, yeah, it was literally a hop. And took this young man in, into A&E, uh, and the young, young girl. And that's it. He, he had survived an ordeal that uh, could have very easily have been fatal. It had been a really long night and a lot of hard work. I was uh, just about to say, how long had you been awake? Oh, uh, I know. I don't really want to say, A.B. <laughs> <laughs> Probably 24 hours or so. Mm. But because of the the concentration required, the level of arousal, um, it is... I've done a lot of jobs like that where if started off in the evening and I've been on jobs where I've been airborne when the sun goes down and still flying when the sun comes up. Um, I won't say I've got a higher tolerance than anybody else, but uh, I'm always very, very aware of the effects of fatigue when they start coming in and start making, start double checking stuff. Um, That goes against all of the, all of the, um, <clears throat> established wisdom, but um, I'm a here. I'm nearly sixty-five, and I'm still kicking. Yeah, well, you, your crewman, um, you know, alluded to the fact that you were heroes, and you know, there's a lot of people that will just go by the rules and say we're not going, and then there's other people that say we'll give it a go. Um, Can I ask you, Ab, what's your opinion? Um, if you have two drivers, and and I, I would be really happy for this to be included because I need it in your podcast because um, I've always taken the view that um, a forecast is a forecast and quite often, you know, over 35 years or, or more of flying, I know that quite often the actual conditions bear no um, resemblance. So in your opinion... The attitude of give it a go, um, do you believe that is the correct or incorrect way? Yeah, well, I, I think as companies get bigger and multinational and robust ops manuals, there's no room for being a hero. We're uh, heroes. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I was doing a job that I've been doing for years in an aircraft that I've been flying for I 14, 15 years. 89, I started flying the 412. A very, very familiar aircraft, a very comfortable environment. Um, and you're absolutely correct. Uh, I've often I've often thought that were the Senator Hobart um, catastrophe happen again, the, those, those survivors would have been left to their own devices. Mm. Um, the company ops manuals would would deem the conditions too dangerous to fly in. Mm. Where, um, you know, we we proved absolutely that they weren't, and I don't believe they were anyway. But uh, as you say, it's all it's all coming down now to uh, more and more restrictive uh, rules and regulations, and it's a it's a universal truth that. Um, Bureaucracy always tends to complexity. So, people people who feed off the money made by 
by the only people in a, an aviation company who make money are people who touch the aircraft. Mm. That's pilots, crewies, and engineers. Everybody else is paid out of their effort. And yet there are legions of, of non-producing bureaucrats in multiple companies who make it harder and harder for the operators to do their jobs. Yeah, I think the modern EMS pilot is reluctant to step away from the written word. With good reason. Yeah, because if something goes wrong, you'll be left hanging. Yeah, 100%. There's no, there's no page in any ops manual that says, take all this into uh, consideration, but apply common sense. Yeah, and and fall back on your experience. Mm. Mm. Uh, experience is... is an amazing thing it's you know these are networks in the in the brain that um increases time goes goes on so even though and it, it's a digression but even you know the number of brain cells we have dies off over the, the decades but the number of connections between them increases and that's the number of connections actually has a term and that's called wisdom mm. and that's where wisdom can be applied to these situations to second guess um, rules and procedures to operate within them but not be curtailed by them. Yeah, well, the most op operations manuals are written so the lowest common denominator can achieve the task safely. It's true to an extent, but uh, in fact, op ops manuals are mainly written to appease CASA. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Did you have but, any... Uh, Sorry, go on. Uh, I was just going to say, I'm digressing. We'll, we'll get into a whole new realm if I'm not careful. <laughs> Do you have any contact with this young lad? No, never. That's pretty typical of EMS, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the the only um, the only follow up I had was um, the job to Mount Bogong on 11 September 2002 was the last time I flew for Southcare. Uh, I was in a. Um, I was about to face the company in industrial relations court over a long-running running battle, um, which I lost, and I literally went into exile after um, after that job. I'm still in exile. I, um, the last time I landed on Canberra Hospital pad was January this year on a job out of Trove Valley. Um, during the bushfires, and that was the first time in 18 years that I'd landed on that pad. So I, I have not worked in my hometown since the since losing that industrial relations court. Um, one of the pilots at Southcare was quietly tasked with investigating the job to find out how I had done it legally when it had been knocked back by two other um, two other operators. So they were sifting through trying to find evidence of breaking rules, not following procedures, not helped by the crew who gave these. I got this through a very reliable source. Uh, the crew had gone on to tell his um, colleagues that we'd been descending through cloud and um, the conditions on the ground, you know, was scratching along low level and it really, really beat it up. On descent, we did fly through some cloud, but there were little tiny puffballs of cumulus, really, really benign little bits of cloud. And he's going, we can't descend through cloud. I said, look, we can see how big they are, and we can see what's, what, what's past them. We're not descending through cloud. Mm. Um, but I think that might have fed into the, the narrative that they were trying to construct. And how, so, did, that, how did that all end up? Um, well, I, I took the company to court. Um, I lost. I couldn't get a job in Australia and I ended up in the Middle East, which is a really interesting story for another another time. Yeah, the next episode. Two, two years in, a, in an insane asylum. <laughs> so, um, no, I never heard from, from either of them. Um, there's a, when we dropped the kid off at the hospital, there's... So not an incident, but an event uh, where the, we were all in A&E standing around this kid and the, the nurses were moving his legs around. You could see the 
ends of the bones moving under his skin. They're basically trying to stabilize the fractures. And they'd called a doctor. Uh, he might have been an intern. And this young man came down and he was furious. He said, Don't you know I'm in theatre this morning? And I thought he meant comedy theatre. <laughs> Um, you know, don't don't you know how important I am? Why have I been dragged down here for a broken leg? And I thought Ian Crossley was going to punch him. Uh, it was such a it was was such a a display of self importance and yeah, a real prima donna. So the crew he sort of um, jerked his head like you know we we shouldn't be here. So we sidled out and left them to it. And I went for a pit stop and I was walking past the tea room later on and there's Mr. I'm an important doctor sitting down with a cup of coffee in a woman's weekly magazine I nearly punched him mm. yeah you've got to take your medical professionals to find them there's certainly the, the paramedics and the nurses were incredible but unfortunately um, there are others who aren't as, aren't as professional or committed mm. would you uh, after having been through all of that would you attempt the rescue like this again on a night sun mm. or with MBG? Either. I'd attempt it, yes. Mm. Good on you. Um, well, everything was a known quantity, AB. Well, I'm sure there's a pretty happy young lad, or he's probably an adult by now. Yeah, he would be. It was a long time ago. That uh, has got a story to tell. It'd be good to hear that story. Um, it's, it's nothing that I hadn't done before and I haven't done since. And I still know how to do. Mm. Um, it it relies on uh, precise flying, and of course, back in those days, um, I never bothered with a flight director because that's not how I'd been brought up. I was brought up by Christine Davy and Trevor Pelling, who f who flew an IMC in instrument conditions in cloud by day and night with no uh, flight director. Um, so. For anybody who doesn't know what a flight director is, a flight director enables you to push a couple of buttons, the aircraft will hold an altitude. Um, if it's a really good aircraft, hold an altitude, hold an airspeed, hold a heading. But, uh, I hand flew the entire the entire trip. Whereas nowadays so, the, the manuals recommend the use of flight director almost the whole time. Well, more than that, um, a lot of ops manuals mandate the use of uh, automation say so you must use it not you can use it and um, over the last few years instructing on the sim well, when I was still a check and trainer um, I've seen guys who lose the flight director usually if you just take in the 412 if you just take one autopilot out the um, auto trim doesn't work so you've got to You've got to manually fly the aircraft. Um, I saw one. I took an autopilot off one guy and sat back as the nose started to pitch up because the, the the one system that did work had saturated, so it was no longer giving input. Um, the nose started to pitch up, and the aircraft started wrong. And he sat there frowning, going, what's going on? Uh, his co-pilot went to help him, and I, I sort of signaled from behind, don't, don't intervene. And watch while this pilot let the aircraft pitch up, um, roll inverted and come out of the sky in a vertical dive. We, we broke out of cloud about 1,500 feet in a vertical dive. There are a lot of pilots now who, who can't fly safely by hand, who must have the automation. Mm. And this is, um, this is a direct result of the individuals who, who dictate procedures having no knowledge of what's involved. Uh, of taking the trying to take the human out of the loop because the autopilot flies better, and it does until it stops working. So, the art of hand flying is being being killed. It's not dying; it's being killed. Hmm. Um, and as you know, uh, there are situations where <clears throat> automation has failed, um, and an aircraft with hundreds of passengers. passengers on board has um, crashed in the sea because mm. the, the crew doesn't know what to do. Mm. 
power plus attitude equals performance. It's a, you know, that's a magic spell that people have forgotten. Yes, yeah, they have. <sighs> so that was Mount Bogon, the second hardest rescue I ever did. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting story, and especially since, um, you know, you had a positive outcome but got into trouble for it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's been my my history, as you know, AB. Mm. Yeah, I had a, a similar incident where there was a a rescue where a couple of things went wrong, and the company wanted to uh, castigate me for it, but it got really positive media feedback. Yep. And uh, they they didn't uh, pursue it. Yeah. Well, what was the job, maybe? It was just a car accident on the side of the road at Gumaraka. Oh, yeah. And uh, we landed in a pretty tight spot and uh, hit a couple of leaves on the way in. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that was it. That was, they wanted me gone. Oh, uh, it's terrible. Mm. Uh, yeah, if it, was, if it was them in the car wrapped around a tree, um, you know, they would, they would have you do anything to get in there to come to their aid. It's it's so hypocritical. Yeah, it was the only job I did that I got feedback from the family, which was oh good, pretty good. The I did get feedback once um, from the hardest job I've I've ever done, uh, which maybe we can talk about one one other day. But finally, on the way home from this in, incredibly um, challenging job, um, I commented over the. Intercom. I hope this. I hope this asshole knows what we've just done on his behalf. And the paramedic, Kath, said, "Ray, he's on headset." <laughs> yeah. So, a couple of weeks later, he dropped off. Um, he was a spinal patient we picked up out of a ravine. His injuries weren't bad. He was out of hospital after a week or so. He dropped a carton of beer off at the base, and it was light. Beer. He could have just. He, he, I would have been less offended if he just pissed on my shoes. So that's the only one I've ever had feedback from. Do you think he did it on purpose? Maybe he thought you were a pilot and you didn't need to be drinking. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it was innocent, but um, light beer. You know, you drown before you get any any enjoyable effect. Mm. So there you go. Thank you. Mm. That's. Brilliant story. I love it. Thanks for having me, AB. Yeah. Uh, we'll have another instalment shortly. Yeah, look forward to it. You've got a lot to say. Yeah, I've given a lot away, but, you know, what can they do? Take a birthday off me. I did a podcast with a good friend of yours who had uh, good things to say about you. Yeah, I listened to that. Um, and it was a very, a very brave, I thought it was a very brave thing to do. The glass prison. Yeah. Um, and again, it it goes down to the uh, the talent of the person doing the interview. Because <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, obviously, this is why people listen to your podcast. Uh, as I said to to Chris, that you know, um, you don't steer the conversation, but you 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 don't control the conversation, you but you guide it. So um, uh, it's it's good fun. I enjoy it. Very good. We'll, we'll do it again. Look forward to it. Thanks, Ray. See you, Abe. Bye. Bye.